You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host, Alex Marku. Today is December 20th, 2021, and for today's episode, I'll be letting you know the plays I bought in last week, some small market news that came from JP Morgan and another one of Ryan Cohen's tweets, and then for sports, I'll talk about how COVID has impacted the bet slips and overall just sports in general, and then because of the spike of all these COVID cases, at least in the sports world again, I'll be betting a little bit lighter on this episode. And then to wrap up this episode, I'm going to be talking about the one thing that you've always had on your mind depreciation. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Financial disclaimer. Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back my apes and retail investors that think alike. On today's investing segment, I'm going to quickly go over my ADGI stock and why I wasn't able to buy it. I'll complain a little bit about Coinbase and my reasonings for it. And then I'll let you know two key market developments, in my opinion, that occurred last week. So before we get into it, let's hop into a quick apes update portfolio. In my securities segment, I have a valuation of about $448.43. For my cryptocurrency segment, it's valued at about $251.53. And then my gambling segment as of Sunday night is valued at $411.11. This puts my total portfolio valuation at $1,111.07, which is a small gain of 1% considering all the money I've put into this portfolio, but I'm not really paying attention to that percentage gain yet. And now that I'm done with the portfolio update, let me explain what happened on Friday. Because on Friday, I was only able to buy one of the securities I promised you guys I would, and that was Doge. So I was able to put in $25 worth of Doge at about 17 cents because Coinbase is weird they only give you 2 cent intervals and for this $25 they charge the $1.49 fee which I think is kind of trash and as soon as there's another viable option open out there for buying more cryptocurrencies rest assured we are switching ASAP because being charged $1.50 on a $25 trade is absolutely stupid. And honestly, the only reason I'm using Coinbase is because I know they have a lot of coins I can buy off of their platform. Personally, I use Binance just because it has most of the coins I'm looking into, but Binance is also limited in the amount of coins, at least compared to Coinbase. And if I'm being completely honest with you, the only reason I chose Coinbase as a provider is because I'm pretty new to the crypto markets and I just wanted an exchange that offers the most coins. And I found out Coinbase was on the top of that list. Now I know why, because they can charge you a 6% commission fee every single time you hit buy. 
that's pretty fucking stupid in my opinion, because unless you think you can beat this 6% handicap, that means you're always going to be put at a 6% loss the instant you finish your buy order from Coinbase. And if you think you can beat this 6% handicap, then by all means keep experimenting with them. But in my opinion, there's a reason that there's these companies like Coinbase, Robinhood, and all these shady brokerage systems that rely upon beginning and novice investors. Because they know they probably don't give a shit or even notice this 6% commission charge. And although I view myself as a novice in the crypto sphere, I'm certainly no dumbass when it comes to numbers. So when I buy $25 worth of a coin and it shows that I only got $23 worth of it, I know something's up. And the part of it that's up is that's the business model that Coinbase and other brokerage systems like this rely on. It's called purchase for order flow if you will. You're essentially getting a worse pricing on something, but you don't really know it because the price on the screen isn't actually the true price behind the scenes. So although I'm using Coinbase right now, I want to reiterate my stance that as soon as I find another viable option out there that at least offers somewhat around the same amount of coins or even more, we're going to be switching over as soon as possible. Because being charged 6% on just hitting the button buy is pretty dumb, especially now because there are certain cryptocurrency coins out there that are going to absolutely derail these brokerage intermediaries. But for now, we'll just keep our head in the sand with these financial behemoths that make millions and billions of dollars off of fractions of pennies for literally doing nothing but watching money move. So yes, on Friday I was able to get up early at 6.30am in the morning, and instead of buying $25 worth of doge, I'm sorry guys, I was only able to get about $23.50 because my extra dollar and 50 cents went to Coinbase so they could wipe their ass with it. But let me move on before I get too toxic and turn this whole episode into just shit posting on Coinbase. Because on Friday, I was also supposed to buy the security at Daigo Therapeutics, which I think if you remember during my recording I told you was a price point of about $6.50 and how my plan was to buy it on Friday morning along with this Doge transaction. Yeah, well you can forget that idea. Because the next day after I finished my recording, Adigo Therapeutics opened up at about $6.30 and then it shot up all the way to the $15 mark. And I was gonna try and buy this shit on Friday. So I saw this happening on Thursday and instantly went, oh shit, what am I gonna do? Well, I waited for Friday and I was hopeful that by the grace of God, this thing would fall. And it definitely fell, but not enough to my liking, because on Friday morning, when I was anticipating to buy these shares, the price opened up at about $15. So I couldn't even buy the 10 shares I originally wanted to. Remember, I had set an expectation that the most this stock would have risen to would be maybe an $8 range. So I was willing to put 10 shares in at $8 because that means I would have bought $80 worth. But this thing jumped all the way to $15. So I didn't even have enough money in my account to make a purchase, and I didn't. And I know that I said I was going to buy 10 shares of this on Friday morning, but I also said that if somehow this thing were to jump to the $14 or $15 range, I might not even have enough money to buy it. Well, little did I know I was actually speaking the fucking truth. And because I wasn't able to buy the 10 shares I told you I would on Friday, I didn't want to just buy fractions of shares and then surprise you with a podcast this Monday saying, I decided to buy 5 shares because that's all I could. So I guess this is a good practice scenario for what to do if I ever give you a stock recommendation and then from the time I give you that recommendation to the time I actually want to buy it, there was a huge increase. Well, what I'm going to be doing from now on out It's just canceling the trade entirely. So for my Daigo Therapeutics example, it was at about $6.50 when I referred it to you. 
The fact that I would have had to pay $15 per share on Friday, which is just two days from when I recommended the stock to you, well, I'll cancel that trade because if I would have seen that coming, I wouldn't have told you to buy it on Friday. I would have told you to buy it immediately. But on the other hand, if the inverse had happened and if a Daigo Therapeutics had gone from $6.50 to $2 or $3, we're definitely hammering the buy button. And we're going to buy the exact amount of shares I said. So let's say for some weird reason a Daigo actually went down to $3. Well, I wouldn't double up to 20 shares. What I would do is just buy the 10 shares I initially stated. And then for this episode, I'd let you know what my plan is. And are you ready to hear the reason why this stock jumped so much? Because there was a second lab test that came back from Atago Therapeutics about their antibody, and it was that it could actually tackle this Omicron variant. Remember, the reason that this stock fell 80% was because the first test that came out claimed that the antibodies were useless against this Omicron variant. And remember, my speculative motive was literally to just buy this stock and wait for this exact article. Too bad it happened a couple days after instead of a week or so. And this article came out published on Thursday. So that's why this stock jumped from the low $6 all the way to the high 15s. Because the original 80% fall this Adigo Therapeutics had was unmerited and not needed. It only fell because the antibody wasn't able to protect you from the Omicron variant. Well guess what? A second test just came out saying psych! And on Thursday, the stock jumped over 100%. Now, it had a little bit of a fallout on Friday, and I can probably attribute that to anyone that made a shit ton of money, because the stock fell about 20%. And even though for this Apes portfolio and podcast, it might seem like it's too late to jump in, I'm actually going to be keeping my eye on this stock for this upcoming week. Now, we're not going to be able to get in at the beautiful price point of 6 or $7 how I would have liked to, but I'm still going to be looking to get in at a price point of $10. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be observing how the stock moves for today, tomorrow, and Wednesday. And if it falls below $10, the second it does, I'm going to be buying 5 shares at the market price. Regardless of what the market price is, I'm just going to make sure I try and catch these shares below $10. So from today to my next episode on Thursday, my plan is going to be to scalp ADGI and try and buy 5 shares below $10. I'll let you know at what price I buy them if the stock so happens to fall below this $10 mark. On the chance that it doesn't, well it looks like this is just going to be a play that I missed out on. And honestly, I'm not even as bummed personally because I know I would have bought into this stock on a personal account. I'm more bummed that I wasn't able to show you the results on a podcast level. Because I was able to technically call this out before it happened, but I wasn't able to actually add it to the portfolio and show you the numbers behind it. So I still need to find my big winners in the stock market and in the crypto world for this apes portfolio. And until we get our first big winners, I'm not content. And then one last little bit of news for what occurred in this apes portfolio last week that I actually didn't mention because I didn't notice until the weekend was that I actually bought one of my Cortozyme option calls. Remember for that Cortozyme stock how I was also looking at an option for January 21st of next year? Well, when I placed my buy orders for all my options contract, I guess I placed them for good till cancelled. So that meant if my limit order was hit, it would have bought this option. And I guess that's exactly what happened and I just kind of forgot about it. So now for this Apes portfolio, if I haven't let you know, because I literally just found out this weekend, I bought an options contract last week and it's the Cortezyme one that's going to be expiring next year, January 21st, and my bet on it is that it's going to reach $45. The total cost for this option contract is about 10 cents and if I'm going off of my memory, it's in the earlier episodes where I literally said that I'm going to be putting in a buy limit order for 10 cents on this. 
I just completely forgot that I did that. So now we have this option contract that is going to be expiring in a month to deal with. And the share price for Cortezyme right now is $17.50. So we've got quite a way to go to $45 in a month. And then to move away from my actual Apes portfolio for the investing segment, I want to talk about two things that happened last week in the stock market itself. The first of which was an announcement made by JP Morgan and this short squeeze rally that looks like it's going to be coming into the year end. And then the second thing I want to talk about is another one of Ryan Cohen's tweets, which was just the simple tweet of a poop emoji. But first, let's start off with JP Morgan's comment. Because why the hell are they saying a short squeeze rally is looking prominent into the year end? Isn't this something that apes have been saying all fucking year? And now all of a sudden, because you're this huge financial behemoth with tiny nuts and a tiny dick swinging around, you want to hop in this rally? Get the fuck out of here. This is not your shit. Because since January, and even earlier possibly, but since I've joined in January on Reddit, there have been numerous DDs, findings, and anything to go along with it, pointing to a market crash coming that's being imminently brought upon by some very greedy market players and short selling tactics. Well, are you ready to hear what Mr. Tiny Dick JP Morgan and co had to say? Because it was last week during a CNBC broadcast that JP Morgan announced one of their articles and one of the points they decided to actually show the viewers on this show, which if you keep in mind, CNBC and all these media programs are literally programmed to keep you fucking stupid. So you don't know anything about the markets and so they pump and dump you. They actually showed viewers this information. And it was a statement written by JP Morgan's crew that goes as this. Start quote. For short selling campaigns to succeed, there have to be positioning, liquidity, and often systematic amplifiers of the sell-off. We believe these conditions are not met, and hence, this market episode may end up in a short squeeze and a cyclical rally into year-end and January. End quote. Guys, that's a big bank that literally put out these words. Not some degenerative ape on Reddit, that only put about $1,000 worth of GameStop because that's all they had. These are actual financial institutions claiming this shit. And the thing that stands out the most is this is a direct call to all the short sellers and short hedge funds out there. Because they're literally telling them, listen, the positioning for a crash, the liquidity for the crash, and systematic amplifiers are not there for sell-offs. So stop shorting all this shit, you morons. Because I dove down into the statement even further, and they have more than just this small statement, but this is the only one they decided to show viewers. The reason JP Morgan makes this claim is because short sellers have been selling everything like crazy and probably shorting everything like crazy ever since the new Omicron variant came around. And in their tiny stupid little heads when they make their theses up, they're probably thinking, oh well if the world goes back into lockdown, then stocks are going to sell off again and we can profit millions and billions off of this. Yeah. Well, what if it comes into conclusion that the Omicron variant isn't something that people should worry about? This is the conclusion that JP Morgan came to. They literally said, hey guys, it actually looks like the Omicron variant is more of a bullish indicator to the market than a bearish one. The reason it'd be a bullish indicator is because it shows that we're moving on from COVID. Not necessarily moving on from COVID, but at least getting more resilient towards it. And if you want a prime example, just look at my stock ADGI. They literally had the Omicron variant diminished their stock value 80% only to find out that it was bullshit in the first place so then they rose 100%. 
So these short hedge funds and all of these short sellers that have been selling only on the implication that this Omicron variant might put people in lockdown again? Well, that's what JP Morgan is referring to as positioning and systematic amplifiers. Because if the government's not going to force people into lockdown, then it's not going to create a position of fear in the market and people aren't going to be selling their stocks. And are you ready for the best part? It's called liquidity. Because if people aren't selling, well, these short sellers have to fucking buy back these shares no matter what at whatever fucking market price it says. So because they were morons and most likely doubled down on their positions during the Omicron variant, and I'm not talking about every single institution, I'm talking about ones that are targeting for short selling, well they're going to be very surprised if this Omicron variant turns out to be nothing more than just a small little side variant and it can actually be handled. Because what's going to happen in the market is no one's going to be selling their stocks and if they're actually buying these dips, these guys are so fucked because when their options contracts expires and all these derivatives expire, guess what has to happen? They have to enter the marketplace and beg on their fucking knees for these shares because they promised they would buy them back. You see, they sold them a couple months ago with the promise that they would rebuy them back. So if everyone's holding on to their shit, well, let these institutions pump the numbers up for you and sell it when you finally feel like it. And I'm not here to say that I'm pumped because JP Morgan, a fucking media head, is telling me about this. I'm pumped because months ago, there were regular people, like you and me, all over these Reddit forums, literally spouting this shit and providing real information, real numbers, like Evergrande going into default in China, and contagion breaking out, and how all of these loans are going to stockpile on top of each other, and how the derivatives market is uncontrolled, unregulated, and everything is just a house of cards waiting to fucking fall down. So yeah, I've been following this shit since January. And now all of a sudden, you have a big bank telling you this? Well, this shows me one of two things. They're either running their regular scheduled program of controlled media and trying to push a narrative for another stock market push, or someone out there got wind of certain information that shit's about to hit the fan. And when it comes to these financial institutions that handle all these large amounts and sums of money, when there's blood in the water, trust me, they don't give a shit about anyone but themselves. So to me, this looks like JP Morgan is either trying to be first in something, or give off a warning flag for some of their buddies. Regardless, I don't know what it is, but I'm bullish because you've got a big banking financial institution with a tiny dick telling you the same thing that all these reddit apes have been telling me since January. So they're either waking up or they know the shit they're in is about to hit the fan. And whether shit hits the fan or not, I don't really care because the way I view this as a GameStop investor, and by no means was JP Morgan alluding to this short squeeze on just one singular stock, they were actually talking about the whole market scope in general, but from an individual GameStop investor point of view, the reason I find this significant is because it seems like the mainstream media is delayed by Reddit for a couple of months. I mean, direct registering shares and everything like this was talked about on Reddit months before it was even mentioned on mainstream media. Short squeezes were talked about on Reddit months before it was even mentioned on mainstream media. And now you've probably got someone on the JP Morgan side who realizes, holy shit, what if these Redditors are right? Well, we still want them banking with us because that's a lot of money. So let's look like we're good guys right now. Remember, these banks are never your friends. 
They literally steal from you and then hide it in plain sight. So I would take whatever JP Morgan said with a little grain of fucking salt, but the pure fact that JP Morgan even felt the need to say this, I would take with a bigger grain of salt if you've been on the Reddit forums and DD over this past year. If you haven't tuned into it, then take all of this information with a small grain of salt. And if you've been following Reddit forums in this crazy market since January, well, big ass wink to you because I think you know what's coming up. And although I still think it's cool that JP Morgan even said short squeeze in a statement of theirs because lawyers have to look this shit over, that's not really what I care about. There was some even bigger news, in my opinion, that came out last week, and that was Ryan Cohen tweeting a picture of a poop emoji. <laughs> and I know what you're probably thinking, you're like, really, you're gonna break down another Ryan Cohen tweet? But no, seriously, this one was funny, because he posted a picture of a poop emoji Friday morning, and then guess what? Mainstream media started attributing the gains of AMC and GME relatively to a poop emoji and Spider-Man the movie. So now you've actually got these articles writing about Ryan Cohen's tweets. He's literally like Elon Musk is with Tesla, but this time it's Ryan Cohen with GameStop. And I'll spare you from giving you true in-depth analysis of this poop emoji, but I will give you a small sliver of it, because I was scrolling through Twitter and I found this really interesting tweet. And the tweet came out from someone named Corey Pietowski. Their handle is at Pietowski. So it's P-I-E-T-K-O-W-S-K-I. So, let's get into what their tweet was. They tweeted that the poop emoji was posted exactly 20 days before the January run-up. Well, guess what? Another poop emoji and what in 20 days? Ted Cohen's birthday. That's Ryan Cohen's dad. He puts, OMG, I'm Jack to the tits. So this jack to the tits is a saying that everyone on Reddit says, which is essentially like saying, let's fucking go. So I'll use some amount of DD in this and I'll break apart this tweet so that you can kind of understand the importance of the poop emoji, if there is any. And I'll start it off with the very first thing Corey points out in his tweet, which was that the poop emoji was 20 days before the last January squeeze. What does this mean? Well, he posted a picture for reference. Because earlier this year, January 6th of 2021, Ryan Cohen also posted a picture of a poop emoji, and below it he had an image of Blockbuster. Well, 20 days later from that infamous poop emoji, GameStop went on its insane run. Not only that, but when Ryan Cohen posted this, the price of GameStop was probably anywhere between $15 and $20. 20 days later, over $300. So if we were to go off of that math, 20 days later from his original post, which was on December 17th, that would put us at January 6th, which is the first time he posted his poop emoji earlier this year. And what's on January 6th? Well, Corey told us it's Ted Cohen's birthday, which is Ryan's dad. What relation does this have at all to GameStop? Probably none whatsoever. But what's great is it shows you how interactive Ryan Cohen is with his shareholders because he knows that they follow these little things, and he knows they care. And he's also working extremely hard behind the scenes to transform what short hedge funds are calling a dying brick and mortar store to a revamped technological growth company specializing in video game sales while having retail locations and business locations up and running for full fulfillment centers so they can provide fast shipping. Not only that, but if this metaverse or online world develops into something more serious and we actually get esports out of it, 
guess who's going to be in there at the top of the line and ready to swoop in that market? It's yours truly, GameStop. And if you want me to provide you a moat for GameStop, which remember how I said a moat is something that makes a company special? Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. What's the first gaming console you bought? And who'd you get it from? Ask your parents if you can't remember, because they probably bought it when you were a little kid. Ask them where they bought it from. And then try and picture yourself as that little kid while you were growing up. Whenever you wanted a video game, what's the first place you thought of? Whenever you told your parents you wanted a video game, what's the first place you told them to go? And not only that, but if your parents were also into video games, maybe ask them where did they buy their video games from? You see where I'm trying to go with this? GameStop has almost two generations of loyal customers who think of GameStop first when they think of video games. And I know a lot of us can joke back in the old days where you could trade in your Xbox 360 for just $10 at GameStop, but that's the old dying brick and mortar store these short hedge funds want you to think of. Think about it this way. What if GameStop revamps themselves to be an Amazon of the video game world? Well, where's the first place you'll think of to buy video games in the future for your kids? So, I'll just leave you with that for now. And that'll be wrapping up the investing segment for today. I know it wasn't a lot of talk on my upcoming plays or what I'm going to be doing for this week, but I'll still give you a recap on at least what's truly going down for this Apes portfolio. Starting off with one of the first plays where I'm going to be trying to buy back in for my ADGI stock. So I've already started for today, and then for tomorrow and Wednesday, what my plans are going to be is to keep an eye on this stock price, and if it falls below $10, I'll buy 5 shares worth at any price. And then if on Thursday I manage to buy the 5 shares worth below $10, I'll let you know at what price point I bought. I'm also going to be using this week to look into other cryptocurrency exchanges that we can use that don't charge a 6% fucking commission charge every time we just hit a buy button, which is completely absurd because Loopring is going to make something like this irrelevant in the future or any other decentralized trading platforms. And then I'll stick with my Yahoo Finance top gainers and top losers scalper. So along with keeping a close eye on ADGI for the upcoming three days, I'm also going to be using the similar tactic that even helped me find this stock. So on Thursday, I'll let you know some of the top losers or gainers if there are any that I'm looking into. And hopefully, it's not going to be the same situation as ADGI, where I tell you I'm going to be buying it on Friday, only to not be able to because of its insane moonshot. Outside of that... We're just going to keep a close eye on the markets, see if any other big banks feel like touting and shouting a short squeeze like Reddit apes haven't been saying this shit for months. And for all my retail investors and apes out there, stay safe, and until next time, ape out. Welcome back my friendly degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to the sports gambling segment for fun. What a crazy weekend we've had that gave us glimpses of last year. Because COVID struck again in all of the major sports. And if you haven't noticed, the NFL changed a lot of their games around. So we're going to have two Monday night games and we're also going to have two Tuesday games, which is pretty cool. And the COVID bug hasn't just hit the NFL, it's also hit the NBA and other major sports going on right now. A lot of teams have had to reschedule cancel, or just straight up play their games with half of their team essentially and a bunch of practice squad players. And now since this segment is about gambling, I'll tell you what implications it has on that. 
because you can't get a read on a game, especially the way I bet, which is without even knowing what the hell is going to happen in 3 or 4 days. So this just makes betting a lot harder, because I gave you a bunch of picks on Thursday that were meant to be played today, and almost half of those games got rescheduled. But lucky for me, I was able to lock in my picks before, so now I'm just waiting for the games to be played. But that's also an issue. I locked in my picks before all this COVID news spread out, so some of the lines have changed drastically. Regardless of how the lines change because of COVID or any other external factors out there in the real world, I'll never change my bets. And I'll always stick with the team I chose on this podcast, even if when it comes time to put that bet slip, I really don't want to put that bet in. Because like you've seen on this podcast, I can be fully confident in a bet and have it absolutely eat shit, and then I can put in a bet that I don't really have the most confidence in, and it goes 100%. So, what am I to know? And because COVID has been reinfecting all of these major sports, for today's segment, I'm actually going to cut down on the amount of bet slips I'm making for the upcoming days, just to kind of see how this new Omicron variant affects everyone else. Because if in the worst case scenario, we have to go through another shutdown or anything remotely similar, well, I want to stay far away from betting on sports, just so we don't get rug pulled on our picks. So before I get into the two bet slips I want to create, let me recap the picks I made from the last episode for at least the games that have been played and let you know which bet slips are still up and running and for which games we're going to be rooting for. So for starters, let's go on to the college football round robin I created. And let me be the first to tell you that I had zero idea that college football bowl week was literally a week and a half or two weeks. Because when I put in these college football plays, I honestly thought most of these games were being played over the weekend. Turns out, these bowl games are spanned and stretched for about a two-week period, because Alabama and Georgia don't even play until the end of this year. And for whatever reason, when I was looking at these games, I paid zero attention to the actual date, and I just looked at the matchups because I thought, well, hey, it's going to be this weekend. So because I didn't know that college football bowl week was literally two weeks stretched out, a lot of the picks I made for this round robin haven't even been played. So if you want to think of it in a way, we can treat this as a bet slip that we're going to continue because, well, I just didn't pay attention to dates. So to recap this bet slip really quickly, if you do want to follow along and don't remember what it was from the last episode, my college football bowl games round robin had Coastal Carolina to win by at least 10 and a half, and they're the only game that played, and unfortunately Coastal Carolina won by only 6. So they clearly didn't cover their spread, and already that's one lost team I have for this round robin. The other 7 games have not been played yet, and will be played within this week or next week. And if you'll want to follow along with the picks, well here they are. I had Oregon to get an underdog win over Oklahoma. I had Alabama to win by at least 14 against Cincinnati. I have Tennessee to win by at least 4.5 against Purdue. Then I also have Georgia to win by at least 8.5 against Michigan. Then for the Rose Bowl, I have Ohio State beating Utah by at least 6.5 points. Then for the Fiesta Bowl, I like Oklahoma State to get an underdog upset win over Notre Dame. And then finally, in my famous Duke's Mayo Bowl, which I renamed the Kenneth Griffin Mayo Bowl, I like North Carolina to win by at least 8.5 points over South Carolina. So that's what my college football round robin bet slip looked like, and I put $2 risk on that bet slip, so it risked a total of $56. And these games are being played over the next week or two, so I'll be keeping you up to date with those games and the outcomes for this specific bet slip. Now, I also made another bet slip for college football that's not going to be played until, well, the end of this year. 
And that was a two-team parlay I had of Alabama to win by at least 14 and Georgia to win by at least 8. I risked $25 for that bet, so we'll find out at the end of the year if this bet hits once those two teams play the game. Alright, so now that I've recapped my little college football blunder by just not looking at the dates and realizing that the bowl week was for two straight weeks, let's go over the NFL games that were actually played this weekend because I still had some action on these games. And I'll start off with the parlays I created because, well, those are just easier to explain. And then the first parlay I created was to have the Kansas City Chiefs win by at least three and a half on Thursday night football, which they did in overtime, and I was very graceful for it. But then I also had the Patriots to win for Saturday night football, and well, they just showed up and laid an egg. That wasn't a Patriots football team we were watching on Saturday, if you did tune in for that game, but they managed to almost make a comeback. So I had to sit on the edge of my seat and actually watch that game all the way through, just to be left with the hope that the Patriots would mount an amazing comeback, only to have Jonathan Taylor run over 60 yards on them for one of those back-breaking touchdowns that pretty much ended the game. And for this parlay, I put $25 on it, and since the Patriots weren't able to win, well, I lost the $25. And then the next two parlays I had was the NFC Beast parlays. And this parlay was me rooting for specific teams that I need to win in order for the Washington football team and for the Eagles just so they can have a chance to make the playoffs together along with the divisional winner, which is most likely going to be Dallas. And for this one, I chose the Falcons, Bucks, and Bears money line, and then between the Eagles and Washington football team, I split up those. And I had two parlays of this, and I put $5 wrist on each one. Well... It doesn't really even matter because the Falcons wound up losing to the Niners and they weren't able to pull off that upset. So not only are both parlays negated because the Falcons lost and I had the Falcons winning on both of them, but so are my chances that we're going to be seeing an NFC beast in the playoffs. So it doesn't look like the Eagles, Washington football team, and Cowboys can all make it into the playoffs this year because the Niners really aren't going to be choking away their lead, so it looks like they're going to at least get that sixth seed, or maybe even better. So my parlay picks this week definitely didn't hit. And another thing that didn't hit was my attempt to go back to back with my NFL 10 team pick teasers. And for a quick reminder if you're not sure what the teaser comprised of, I had the Chiefs to cover by plus 3, the Patriots to cover by plus 8.5, the Steelers by 7.5, the Cardinals to win by at least 7, so they're one of the teams that didn't win because they straight up lost to the Lions. I don't know how. Then I also had the Bengals to cover an 8.5 point spread, which they did, the Buffalo Bills to cover a 4.5 spread, which they did, the Atlanta Falcons to cover a plus 15 spread. This means they could have lost by 2 touchdowns and they would have covered their spread. Well, guess what? They lost by 18. So I guess it's not the worst thing in the world that the Cardinals lost, because at least I wouldn't have lost this teaser to the fact that the Falcons couldn't even lose by just 2 touchdowns. They lost by 18? Come on, bruh wake up. And now let's just play a game of what if. Let's say the Cardinals had won by 8 and the Falcons were able to cover that tough spread of 15 goddamn points. Well then we would have been rooting for the Bucks to win by at least 5 during Sunday night football, the Bears to cover a plus 9.5 point spread, and then I also chose the Eagles to win by at least 1. So in our what if scenario, we would have been rooting for those 3 teams and if those 3 teams would have been able to cover as well, then I would have been able to go back-to-back -back in my NFL 10-team pick teasers. But unfortunately, the Cardinals and the Falcons already ruined the chance for me, so it looks like it's on to next week to try again. And then the last bet slip I had created for the weekend was my NFL round-robin pick. Now remember, this wasn't completely comprised of underdogs, but there were a lot of underdogs there, 
mixed with two spreads at the very bottom. So this bet slip comprises the Patriots, Steelers, Texans, Bengals, Bears, and Chargers all to get wins because they were underdogs in their games when I gave you the pick. This was before all of this COVID madness, so the lines probably changed drastically. And then because I didn't want to put any other underdogs mixed with this, I had the Jets to cover at least a 10 point spread, and the Bucks to win by at least 11 points for Sunday Night Football. From this bet slip already, and the games that have been played, I can tell you that the Steelers, Texans, and Bengals all got their underdog wins, and then the Chargers and Patriots weren't able to come out on top. The Jets were also able to cover their plus 10 spread, because they only lost by a touchdown. So given all of that, I'm still waiting on two outcomes, which is the Bears to win, and I chose them as an underdog, and then I also need the Bucks to win by at least 11 for Sunday Night Football. By worst case scenario, if those two bet slips don't hit, I've already profited $1.30 on this bet slip. And if you're a believer in superstition, then this part's really gonna piss you off, because I put a yes as an assumption for the bets to win, just to see what the best case scenario is. And if the Bucks are able to win by at least 11, and the Bears win tonight for Monday Night Football as an underdog, then this bet slip can win us $91. Yes, you heard that right, $91. But Right now, we're stuck at $1.30 profit, and we're waiting on two games to happen. So now at least in terms of the betting account, and all this COVID craziness going on with games being rescheduled, you're caught up as much as you can be for my gambling segment. And because of the craziness in the sports right now, I've decided to limit the amount of bets I make. And also, I'm not gonna lie, I listened to my last episode's podcast in the sports gambling segment, and I wanted to shoot myself. Because not only did I 1. forget to recap some picks, but two, it felt like I was giving you a bunch of BS analysis because I'm not really the best sports commentator by any means. And I did all of that just for COVID to come in my face and have these games rescheduled and throw everything I said out the window. And it wasn't like this for every game, but it certainly was like this for most of the games. And looking back on that episode, trying to learn from my mistake, I'm going to be trying to give you guys as little analysis as possible while also not trying to make this part of the segment sound like I'm just reading off picks. Because I understand it's a little bit boring to just read off picks, but in my mind, it's not boring to make money off of them. So in a perfect world, I could explain some of the analysis behind my picks and give them out to you in a non-boring way. But I'm still experimenting with it on this segment, so bear with me if you can. My hope is that I can at least provide winning picks. So if you have to listen to my voice, and it might seem a little monotonous while I'm giving out these picks because it sounds like I'm reading a list off a shampoo bottle, well they better be winning picks. So here's to turning over a new leaf, and only progressing at least in this sports gambling segment on how I give out picks and if I even provide analysis in the future. Because right now if I'm being honest, I have zero idea what kind of analysis I would even provide. I just like making these picks based off what looks good to me sometimes in the moment. Alright, so with all that said, let me dive into the bet slips I'll be creating, at least until the next episode. Because for the next episode you sports degenerates, trust me. We're going to be making plenty of bets because it's going to be Christmas weekend. And both these bet slips are going to be in the format of my round robin pickings. The only difference is, these round robins aren't going to be slated to be 8 picks total. So let me show you what I mean with my first NFL round robin, which is actually comprised of the two Monday night games and our two Tuesday night games. Because for one of the first games on Monday night football that wasn't actually scheduled, but this was one of the rescheduled games, is the Raiders visiting the Browns. And I like the Browns to win by at least 3 in this game, which is what their line was set at when I bet it. The other game we're going to be having for Monday Night Football is the original scheduled one, the Minnesota Vikings visiting the Chicago Bears. 
And in this game, I actually like the Bears' money line, but for this bet slip, I'll be picking their plus 6.5 spread instead. Because remember, for my one round robin, I already have the Bears' money line, so I don't feel the need to add them again. Now moving on to Tuesday, which typically doesn't have NFL games at all, but this time we have two? And it kinda sucks because they're both being played at the same time, so get your shit together NFL. Don't have two games that are played on Tuesday, which almost never happens, overlapping games. This isn't Sunday. And since these are overlapping games, there isn't one that's first. So the first game I'll talk about is going to be the Washington football team and they're visiting the Eagles. This game has huge implications for both teams because the winner of this game is going to be able to position themselves better for that 7th seed playoff spot. And in this game, although it sounds like a bias, and it is a bias, I'm going to be choosing the Eagles to win by at least 6.5. Now originally I thought the Eagles to win by a touchdown would have been much, but I actually found out a majority of the Washington football team got COVID, so we're not even sure what defensive players might play, and there's a chance that the starting quarterback for Washington football isn't going to be able to play. So I'm definitely going to be choosing my Eagles, because, well, I'm biased and I want us to make the playoffs. But the second game that's going on isn't necessarily as biased, it's more just me thinking about it. And that game is going to be the Seattle Seahawks visiting the Los Angeles Rams. And for this game, I like the Rams to win by at least 7 because I think they're starting to heat up and they're going to want to make a serious push for the playoffs. They're also going to want to get hot because they haven't really played as well as of lately other than the win they just got last week against the Cardinals. But now that might look a little bit overshadowed because the Lions also beat them. So that's going to be recapping my NFL Crazy Games Round Robin. The only game that's not crazy in this whole selection is the Minnesota Vikings playing the Bears because that's the only game that was scheduled to play on these days. The other three games? Well, those are crazy games because they got rescheduled. So to recap this pick, I have the Browns to win by at least three, the Bears to cover a six and a half point spread, the Eagles to win by at least six and a half, and then the Rams to win by at least seven. Since I'm only making a four pick selection on this round robin, I'm only going to be having six total parlays created. So I'll risk $5 on all of these parlays, which is a total of $30 risked. And then because for some small extent, in a sense, I have Monday and Tuesday covered with sports, I wanted to cover at least Wednesday too. And I looked at the NBA slate, and it looks like there's only six games being played then. So I figured, why don't we toss these games into a round robin? And that's exactly what I did. So for this NBA round robin bet slip I'll be creating on Wednesday, for the team that I say I like in these games, I'll either be choosing their spread or their money line if they're an underdog. Because remember, these lines aren't out, and normally what I do for these games that lines aren't out is I just place the bet early in the morning because normally by the morning time, the bookkeepers have all of the odds updated, regardless if there's COVID BS going around. So on Wednesday morning when I wake up, I'll be putting my bet slip for the NBA that consists of the Boston Celtics over the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Atlanta Hawks over the Magic, the Chicago Bulls over the Raptors, the Milwaukee Bucks over the Rockets, I like Denver Nuggets to beat the Thunder, and then I also like the Clippers to beat the Kings. Now keep in mind, I just gave you a team I like. I didn't give you spreads or anything else like this because I don't have that information. But let me use the first game as an example. I said I like the Boston Celtics over the Cavaliers. So let's say Wednesday morning I wake up and the Celtics are favored to win by at least 5. This means their line would be at minus 5. I'm going to be choosing the minus 5 line for the bet slip. But let's say I wake up that Wednesday morning and instead, for whatever reason, the Cavs are favored because COVID's been hitting around. Let's say the Celtics spread is set at plus 5. 
but their money line is at plus 130, what I'll do instead then is instead of picking their plus 5 spread, I'll choose their money line. Because like I said for this bet slip, I'm going to be choosing the spread as a favorite or their money line as an underdog. And since I only made 6 picks on this round robin selection, it's only going to be creating 21 total parlays of 2, because I only want parlays of 2 to be created. And I'll be risking $2 for each parlay, so I'm risking 42 total dollars on this bet slip. As a quick recap, I have the Celtics, Hawks, Bulls, Bucks, Nuggets, and Clippers all on Wednesday to either cover their spreads or win if they're a Moneyline underdog. So all of my sports gambling degenerates and anyone listening to this for fun, that'll pretty much end today's gambling segment. But before I leave, I want to reiterate that I'm going to be working as hard as possible to figure out what I truly want to do with this segment. Do I want to treat it as an area where I give you sports analysis and picks on top, or do I want to focus primarily on making picks so I can grow money in this account for the portfolio? Regardless of the avenue I choose, I look to improve in this segment so at least it doesn't sound monotonous. Because even though I listen to myself endlessly when I edit these podcast episodes in the first place, I'll still tune into them after I air it out to see what I can improve on. And one of the biggest things I heard from my last episode is that my sports gambling segment seemed like way too much analysis, not enough picks, and at the end of the day, it was all for naught because COVID decided to fling everything around. So it made me reevaluate how I'm going to do this segment. I'm still going to be handing out picks, but I don't want to do it in a boring way. So I'll definitely be experimenting with this segment more than I do with all the other ones. So thank you for your patience, and until next time all of my degenerates, ape out. Welcome back class. Today's lesson is going to be on something that gets everyone up in the morning. Depreciation. And because I spent last week talking about the three financial statements, I can now start breaking apart specific criteria off of those statements and explaining them more in detail to you. So for starters, depreciation is an accounting method that allocates the cost of tangible or physical assets over its useful life or the life expectancy. There can be many overall benefits to why a company will use depreciation, but one of the biggest reasons is because if a company uses its depreciation, they can scatter out the costs of that equipment throughout the years while still recording the revenue on their income statement that the equipment produces. So now that I've given you word for word what the textbook would claim as what depreciation is, let me explain it to you in my simple version. So when a company decides to buy a large piece of equipment or machinery to use for their company, they can do one of two things. You could choose to buy the equipment or machinery and decide to expense everything on your income statement, which would be one really hefty expense depending on the cost of the machine. Or, if you wanted to use the benefits of depreciation, you can buy the same machine and instead of expensing it all at once in your income statement, you can expense it over the useful period of life that that machine has. So let's say the company chooses the first method and they buy a machine for a million dollars. What this means is that they would have to put that million dollar cost on their income statement during the period they bought that machine in. And it could look very alarming for investors if they weren't expecting that company to buy the machine and the next time you tune into their earnings report, you see that their net income is lower by about a million dollars than what you expected. And in order to avoid this panic as a business owner, what you could do is simply buy that machine for a million dollars and instead of expense it all at once, you depreciate it over its useful life. 
So now instead of buying the machine at a million dollars and expensing it on the income statement, what you're going to be doing is buying the machine at a million dollars and then putting it as an asset on your balance sheet. And then the rest? Well, that's where the fun accountants like me come in and tell you what the numbers really are going to be for the next couple years on that machine. And the way this works is that whenever depreciation expense is recorded, which is the fancy number those accountants determine to be, using my $1 million machine example, whatever the depreciation expense is would be moved over to the income statement, and then the same amount of that depreciation expense would actually be taken away from the $1 million dollar machine's valuation. So to make things simple, let's say our depreciation expense is $100,000. This means that at the end of the year, the balance sheet will have the same equipment valued at $900,000. And then if we went to our income statement, we could see that we would have depreciation expense for $100,000. Together, that machine's valuation and the depreciation expense on it is still totaled at a million dollars, which is what the machine's value was when we bought it. And one thing that I didn't state earlier, but I'll mention now before I forget, is that when we bought this machine, whether we decide to record this on our income statement all at once as option number one, or use depreciation method as option number two, we're still paying for this machine in cash. So this means for our statement of cash flows, regardless if we choose to expense this all on our income statement at once or depreciate it over a certain period of time, that $1 million for the equipment was a cash outflow in our investing segment. Because as an investor, we would assume the company is investing in this new machine and they're using $1 million worth of cash they have right now to purchase it. It's just the way that they want to record it on their balance sheet and income statement for the upcoming years is going to be slightly different. And before I moved on to the depreciation methods, I wanted to reiterate the importance that depreciation is a non-cash charge. So all of this depreciation really is, is just a way to ease the expenses of these large costing machines into our income statement so investors don't get overwhelmed all of a sudden. And the two other statements investors can look at for this information is the statement of cash flows and the balance sheet. Because in the statement of cash flows, you'll be able to identify when the company decided to actually buy the machine with cash. And then in the balance sheet, you'll be able to look at accumulated depreciation and the long-term assets to get a rough idea of what this current equipment is still valued at. And as for how these companies determine their depreciation expense, well, there's actually a couple methods a company can use. They could use the straight line method, a declining method, a double declining method, the sum of years method, or if they had enough information about the machine that they were buying, they could use the units of production depreciation method. And today, my goal isn't for you to learn all of these methods of depreciation and then be able to depreciate any asset. My goal for today is to explain something so boring that next time you look on this income statement, you at least have a rough idea of how it works and circulates, at least in terms of that company you're looking at. So allow me to explain all the methods of depreciation with a more fun example I've created than what would be taught in school. So for my example, I'll be having a cannabis company that's looking into buying an automatic rolling machine. Let's say right now the cost of this rolling machine is $108,000. And from asking around other cannabis industry companies, we find out that this machine typically lasts about five years. So this means if we buy this $108,000 machine right now in 2021, somewhere near the end of 2026, we're going to have to start thinking if we should buy another machine or what to do next. And not only that, we want to find out what the salvage value of this machine is, which a salvage value is how much can I get rid of this at the very end of its useful life. Because there's still mom and pop shops out there that buy these small machines at a huge discount price, believing they can fix them and then use it for their own automatic rolling joint machines. 
Regardless, as a company, I don't really care. I just want to know what I can sell this machine for at the very end of 2026. And let's say that from looking online as a company, we find out that the machines are selling at about $10,000 a pop, plus or minus $2,000. And to play it conservatively, I've decided to make my salvage value $8,000. Since right now, they're going at about $10,000, but there's a chance I can only sell it for $8,000, I'm going to choose the lowest amount, just so that my accounting estimates are about as accurate as possible. And now, as an unlicensed CPA, I'll let you know that's all the information we really need to start this depreciation method. We know that the machine is going to cost us $108,000. It's going to last about 5 years, so this means at the very end of 2026, we have to figure out what to do with it. And I'm expecting to resell it to these small mom and pops, or anyone that wants it off my hands, for about $8,000. So now given this information, I'll dive into all the different depreciation methods a company like this could use. Starting with the most basic one, which is the straight line method. The reason it's called the straight line method is because every year you're essentially going to be paying the same amount of depreciation. You're making everything linear. Ahem. Straight line. So, what we would do for our straight line method is we would take the cost of the machine, subtract it by our salvage value, and divide it by the useful life of the machine. So for the example I gave you, we would take $108,000, we would subtract it by $8,000, and then we would divide it by 5. So this would put our depreciation expense for our automatic joint roller at about $20,000 a year. This means on the income statement, we're only going to be recording $20,000 each year that we're using this machine for. Do you see how convenient this is? Because as a business owner, for this current year, 2021, I won't have to say that I spent $108,000 on my income statement. Instead, I'll only have to put about a portion of what the year was. And then for next year, all of 2022, I'll only have to record $20,000 worth of expenses on this machine. And this next thing I say might go over your head because it's extremely nerd talk for me, but if you're able to figure out as a business if your machine can produce more than $20,000 worth of revenue, then this will be perfect because you know your break-even point on an annual basis for this joint rolling machine is going to be $20,000. So if this machine is able to produce more than $20,000 worth of revenue, you're doing great as a business. Now if that little side comment went over your head, don't worry, just move along and I believe in you because at some point, those kinds of comments aren't going to go over your head anymore. So by using the straight line method of depreciation, on paper, we're paying $20,000 worth of expenses for this machine every single year. Until by the end of the fifth year, the machine's value on our books is going to be the same valuation as that salvage value I chose, $8,000. And I said on paper, because when we originally purchased this machine, we're doing two things. We're either buying it all in cash, or we're making some kind of loan agreement to buy the machine. Regardless, the terms were made before the actual machine was bought. This depreciation stuff is all done after the machine is bought. So that's why technically this is all a paper expense. Because you still spent money on it, whether you made a loan out or you paid it full in cash when you originally bought this machine. And because the straight line method is the easiest one to explain, I'll also let you know what happens with the balance sheets and income statements respectively with depreciation expense on this. So for the balance sheet, when we first purchase this machine, we're going to be having $108,000 recorded in our long-term assets. At the same time, our statement of cash flows will have a cash outflow in the investing segment of $108,000 as well for machine, property, or equipment. However, on our income statement, because it only records the revenues and expenses for the period that are actually incurred, we're going to have nothing. But what's going to happen exactly one year from now, from the time we bought that machine, 
Using our straight line method of depreciation, when we record $20,000 worth of depreciation expense, that's going to be taking away from the $108,000 on our long-term assets, and it's going to be moving it over to the income statement known as depreciation expense. At the same time, the long-term asset is deducted by $20,000 from our balance sheet because it's being moved over to the income statement. And the way this occurs is by having a debit on depreciation expense and a credit on something called accumulated depreciation. Now by expensing depreciation expense, you're able to move this amount to your income statement. And by crediting an account accumulated depreciation, all you're doing is creating another contra asset account for your actual property, plant, and equipment. And I don't expect you to know exactly what a contra asset account is, but it should sound a little bit familiar. Because I remember explaining accounts receivables to you, and that allowance for doubtful accounts is also known as a contra asset account. Because remember how I explained we have something called bad debt? and you can't always assume you're gonna collect on your credit? Well, in order to show investors on accounts receivable what you're not expecting to collect via this bad debt, you have to create a contra asset account called allowance for doubtful accounts, so that whatever amount is in this allowance for doubtful accounts actually takes away from your accounts receivable. Well, the same thing works with this accumulated depreciation. When I debit depreciation expense for $20,000, I move that amount to my income statement, and when I credit accumulated depreciation for $20,000, because it's a contra asset account to all of my equipment, material, and properties that I'm depreciating, well, it's going to be diminishing the value of that. And although it may seem like I'm just rambling on and getting off topic because I haven't moved on to the other depreciation methods, it's not true at all. I actually just wanted to show you how depreciation moves within these financial statements using the simple method of the straight line method. Because with the other methods, conceptually, this all works the same. So I wanted you to visualize it at least on an easy level. Well, I hope you were able to visualize it. If not, maybe I was able to at least explain something you didn't know yet. And since I've explained conceptually how depreciation works using just the straight line method, my plan now is to kind of zoom through these next methods. And the next depreciating method I wanted to talk about was something called the declining balance method. For the declining balance method, it's pretty simple. First, you just have to find out what the depreciation expense is annually. And since we know the machine is going to be lasting about five years, well, we just take our 100% and divide it by 5 years, which gives us 20% per year. So this means for our declining balance method, we would be using 20% as our depreciating rate. And what's different from this and the straight line method is that you're actually going to be using a net book value. So what I mean by this is for your first year of depreciation, we're still going to do our $108,000 minus our $8,000 salvage value, which will give us an asset value of $100,000. And then taking our depreciation rate of 20%, that means for the first year, we're going to be paying $20,000 worth of depreciation expense. Sounds the exact same as our straight line method so far. But there's one extra step to this method, and that is that we have to find out what the net book value is. Well, that's really simple. Take what the asset value is and subtract it from the depreciation amount. So if our asset value is 100k and we subtract it from 20k, that means our net book value after one year is going to be 80k. So what you're going to be doing for that second year, which is different from our straight line depreciation method, is now you're going to take that net book value and you're going to multiply that by the depreciation rate. So you take 80k times 20% and for our second year, that means our depreciation amount will be $16,000. So then what you would do is you would need to find out the net book value after year two. So you would take your $80,000, subtract it by the depreciation amount, which was $16,000, and this means now we would have a net book value of $64,000. You would continue to do this each year, and the only time it's different would be the very last year. 
because for our very fifth and last year, if we continue to do this, our net book value would show about $40,000. So this means we would have to pay off that $40,000 for our last year as depreciation expense. But the reason someone might choose this declining method is because the amount of depreciation expense you actually pay from the first year up until the second to last year of this depreciation model actually starts declining. It isn't until the final year of that asset's life that you would have to pay off the remaining balance. And yeah, the remaining balance might seem large, but if for those first four or five years you're able to manipulate the machine's use and generate a large amount of revenue, I don't think it'll bother you that you're paying twice as much of depreciation expense on your final year for that machine compared to what your depreciation expense was that first year. Because remember, our first year we paid about 20000 of depreciation expense, and using this model, we would have to pay about 40000 by the end of the machine's life cycle. So for a company choosing this method, it's almost easing the expenses into your income statement, and then when the time comes for this machine to expire, you're willing to expense most of it on your income statement. A little side note thought I also just had, a company might do this in a time of recession, especially if they think in the coming years there's going to be more prosperity, because then they would actually have the cash amounts to pay off these expenses. But now let me move on to the double declining method, which is literally the exact same thing I stated above, but instead what you're going to be doing is you're going to be multiplying your depreciation rate by 2. And since our depreciation rate for the declining method was 20%, which again was 100% divided by the total years, which was 5, what we would do for this double declining method is we would make that 20% number 40%. Simple as that. And then we would follow the same metric rules. For our first year, we would do 108000 minus $8,000 to get one hundred k, and then we will multiply it by 40%. So for our first year, we would actually be paying about 40K in depreciation expense. And our net book value for the property would be about $60,000 after the first year. You would then follow the same steps as you would for the declining method. But one key difference you would realize is that you're not going to be paying as much depreciation expense at the very end. And as a matter of fact, you're paying most of your depreciation expense early on in the asset's life. So if you're a company that has a lot of money on hand right now and you can afford it, this might be the smarter method because you're paying most of these depreciation expenses off at first, which can only help you if you grow as a company in the future, because your expenses are going to be less in the future for this machine, and the revenues are going to either maintain the same or get even better. And then similar to our declining balance, whatever's left at the end of the year in that net book value is what's going to be the final year of depreciation expense for the company. And then out of the top four most used depreciation methods, the last one is the sum of the years digits method. And this one's really wonky to explain, but on paper, in my opinion, aside from the straight line method, it's one of the easiest to do. Because essentially, all you do is you take your machine's value minus your salvage value, and then you multiply it by a fraction, where the fraction is the useful remaining life years for the actual machine, divided by the sum of digits. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you. And the best way I can tell you is by starting off with what our fraction is. Because our fraction is going to be the useful remaining lives of the machine's year over the sum of digits. And for your sum of digits, you just have to take the number of useful lives your machine has and do a factorial of it. And what that means, for our example, is we have 5. And a factorial of 5 is if we did 5 plus 4 plus 3 plus 2 plus 1. And what we wind up getting is 15. So that's what's going to be at the bottom of our fraction. And for what goes on the top of the fraction, well, that'll actually depend on what depreciating year we're in. But since I explained how you can get the sum of the years, which is the bottom portion of your fraction, I can now explain how you would do this depreciation method. 
because you would just have to take that machine's value, which we got 100k because we subtracted the salvage value from it, and then you would just multiply it by these fractions. And remember what our fraction was? The useful remaining life years over the sum of digits? So for our first year, since this machine can only be 5 years, it would be 5 over 15. And then our depreciation expense for the first year would be $100,000 times 5 over 15, which comes out to about $33,000. And then for our second year, all you would have to do is you would take the $100,000 again and you would just have to multiply it by 4 over 15. Because now we're in our second year and the useful life numerator is going to be changing from 5 to 4. And you keep doing this until you get to 1. And when you have 1 over your sum of digits, that just means you're in your final year of paying depreciation expense for this machine. And from looking at the sum of years digits, the reason a company would want to do this is because you pay most of your depreciation expense early on and it only goes lower as the lifetime of the machine goes on. It's not like the declining or double declining method, where at the very end of the machine's life that last year, you might have to pay more depreciation expense than what you were doing originally. With this sum of years method, you start off with a high payment and then you only go lower. And similarly to the double declining method, I could see companies choosing this method as a preferred one because you spend most of your expenses early on. So if you have extra cash at the time period, why not choose this method for that time? And if as a company you're struggling on cash but you think you're going to prosper in the future, you'd want to choose the declining method, that way you pay less expenses at first. And now there is one more depreciation method, but it's not really commonly used because you need to understand how much units will be produced by a machine. And if you can't get the kind of information for how many units a machine produces in its life cycle, well then this method will be thrown out the window for you. But for our automatic joint roller's sake, let's say that we find out it can roll about 100 million joints before the machine has to be thrown away. Well now, instead of getting yourself a depreciation rate per year, what you're going to want to find out is what your depreciation rate is per unit. And because we found out that this machine can roll about 100 million joints, what we would want to do next is we would take our machine's value, subtract it by that salvage value, which gets us 100k, and then we would divide it by this 100 million. This puts our depreciating rate per unit at 0.001 cents. And aside from that number just sounding like a crypto coin, it's a very important measure to find out how much depreciation a company is actually going to be expensing each year. Now for forecasting's sake, a company could try and determine how many bottles they're going to be selling in the upcoming years. But what happens in real time is every time a joint gets rolled by our automatic joint roller, the company is going to be able to charge 0.001 cents per depreciation expense. So this means when our income statement comes out, if you see our depreciation amount for one year being $14,600, you can find out how many joints we really rolled with just one machine. Also, if I was a manager of this company and I was in charge of this machine, I could let my bosses know when we're getting near the end life cycle of this. Because I'll have kept track of how many joints this machine actually rolled, and I'm praying that the company wouldn't have you do this manually. And when we get near that magic number of 100 million, well, I can tell the people at the top of that little pyramid that, hey, it's about time to maybe look into getting a new machine. Because this one's rolled too many sticky joints, and it's about to get clogged. So those were all of the depreciation methods listed. We've got the straight line method, which expenses the same amount of depreciation expense every single year on the asset. Then we've got the declining balance method, which uses our book value to determine how much depreciation expense is recorded each year, up until our final year where we have to pay the full amount. We've also got a double declining balance, where if we don't want to pay that large amount at the very end, we can pay most of it at the very front end of the asset's life cycle. But similar to the single declining method, 
we still would have to pay the ending balance of that last year's asset cycle for our depreciation expense. And then one of the last common methods for depreciation method is the sum of the years method, where you take your total useful life and you do a factoring of those years. For our case it was 5, so we found out our factoring of 5 was 15. Then you just have to take the assets value, subtract it from the salvage value, and multiply it by this fraction, which is the useful life years, over this factoring number. And companies do this if they don't want to be surprised at the very end of that asset's life cycle with a huge depreciation expense amount. Instead, what you're doing as a company if you choose this method is to pay most of your depreciation expenses off early in the year so that as the years go on, you're paying less expenses on that asset. And then if you're lucky as a company to buy a piece of machinery or equipment where you know how much units is actually going to be produced before the machine goes old, you can use something called the units of production method, which is where you just take your assets value subtracted from the salvage value and divide it by the total amount of units that the machine can actually do. And then for each year, quarter, or reporting period, you would just take the amount of units produced and then multiply it by this depreciating unit rate. But that's not why I spent today's lesson on depreciation. The reason I wanted to spend today's lesson on depreciation is just to show you that when a company decides not to put all of the expenses they got on their machine, property, or equipment all on one income statement during one period of time, what they're going to be doing is they're going to be depreciating that asset. And the way they do so is by putting it on their balance sheet at first, and then as time goes on, they take away from that asset's value, and they represent the figures respectively in the income statement for the period that those quote-unquote charges would have been occurred. Because remember, depreciation expense is a non-cash exchange. So this means depreciation expense is just taking into account of something that's already happened, but we're just slowly easing the expenses on. Because if you remember, we still bought that machine, and we still bought it with cash or a loan however we decided to finance the transaction. Regardless, we're still putting that machine's asset value on our balance sheet, and we're still letting know our investors know where we spent that money in our statement of cash flows. But the true cost of that machine's value isn't going to start hitting our income statement until we start recording depreciation expense. So for me, I could give two shits if you understood everything about the depreciation methods, or for a matter of fact, how to even record your own depreciation. But what I really will have wanted you to take away from this lesson is how depreciation is used. It's used as an estimate. It's used to estimate how much an asset is going to deteriorate over time, and as a business owner, if you were to buy this equipment and it costs a lot of money, you wouldn't have to expense it all on your income statement, which saves you the headache of having to explain to your customers and investors why your net income was significantly lower than what you expected it to be. Now you have a solid backup plan. You can add this equipment onto your balance sheet, you can show the cash outflow on your statement of cash flows, and then you can slowly start easing this depreciation expense in your income statement on a monthly, quarterly, or yearly basis. And well class, I hope you got something today from this boring lesson, and I know depreciation is nothing to get too excited about. But like I stated earlier, now that I've explained to you guys the financial statements, I can start breaking into some of these boring categories. And trust me, once we're out of these boring categories, we can start talking about some more fun stuff in the markets. And it'd be cruel of me to only have these kinds of lectures, so trust me, I'll be mixing in these boring lectures with some more fun ones as well. But I think the boring ones are the ones that you can actually learn from the most. Because it is going to be my hope that with the more boring lectures I have, it'll create and give you a different perspective on the markets and at least force you to think a different way. 
And who knows, maybe I even spark a dumb little idea in your brain because there was a topic you thought you knew about and after listening to me explain it or try to explain it in simpler terms with my accountancy language, you understand it better. And maybe you have an idea that's even smarter than I could even develop. Regardless, I hope you learned at least one new thing today and if you did, I did my job successfully. And if you've made it this far into the episode, especially this episode, a depreciation one, I just want to give you an extra thank you, an extra love you, and until next time, ape out. Remember, it's okay to depreciate, but never devalue yourself.